This call may be recorded or transcribed. Oh, oh Robbie. Yeah, I didn't get an auto call this time, so I called oh, in. That's weird. Can you hear me okay? I can. How about you? Can you hear me? Yeah, this is good. I'm actually driving back from the office. Uh, we had a big uh, lunch meeting at our old office. So we can uh-huh. move our stuff to a uh, different office and rent out our original office since it's underutilized. Okay. So this is like the first time I've actually spent time at an office in over a year. So it's interesting wow. experience. And I have a commute back home, which I guess I used to do like these commute home phone calls, but it has been a long right. time. Right. So underutilized because more people are working from home? Sorry? The yeah, more people, yeah, but more people are, are, are still working from home. Uh, very few people are working, you know, every day. Uh, company downsized quite a bit since we were last full time in the office, and we I don't think we fully recovered even then. Right. So, yeah, the office rates in the Bay Area have been going down. It may still be, for all I know. A lot of the large companies aren't even. Uh, reopening until uh, fall or even next year. So, uh huh. Anyway, yeah, well, have... what's on your mind today? Yeah, so it, it, you know, as you know, we've been taking a pause from DBJ, and after the last session, I really felt like there was something significant that I hadn't wrapped my head around and that DBJ did not yet embody that I wanted to try and hear what God was saying, if there's something more he wants uh, from me, from us, out of this. And I think I have an idea of what it might be. So I'm still not sure I can explain it or what to do about it. So I had a... um, it's something of a breakthrough in my marriage, and it was an area where, um, like, I had felt I had done the right thing and my wife was in the wrong, but I managed to get to a place where I was able to say, you know, I can see how there was this thing I did where I was unaware of how it affects you, and that uh, led to this, you know, misunderstanding or conflict we have, and I really take ownership of that, and I apologize for that. Mm-hmm. And it was a um, like minor detail. I'm not sure if it meant anything to her, but when I went through that, it made a profound shift in my perception of the situation and of myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, like it is something that I have been stuck on for arguably, uh, well, this particular one was for about six months. Uh, the one I went through previously was about five years. And what's mm-hmm. more interestingly, it feels like this is an area where I run into a lot of stuckness, both in myself and more visibly with other people. In fact, usually the way I notice this happening is I see someone else who appears to be stuck on uh, the fact that they are right and the other person is wrong. And pointing it out does not tend to be received well. And 
when I realize that that is happening and then I get upset at them for like not uh, facing this fact. And then I realize I'm doing the same thing. I'm getting stuck on this, which, right. you know, way back with Bill and Mike, uh, the very first time I did Bible storying was on Genesis 3. And it just struck me that this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh-huh. Is that uh, I feel like I have to say this is right and that is wrong. And that is where I get stuck. Right. And the the way that I look at it is uh, the easiest way for me to make sense of this is something called a sigmoid curve, uh, which is oh, it's hard to get geeky. It's mostly hard to get geeky about graphs on a auditory podcast. Yeah. Um, um, if you remember any of your math functions, uh, well, you remember. Go ahead. Do you just want to explain? Is you it's a Gaussian, the normal distribution, right? Uh, no, I'm the bell curve. Okay. Bell yeah, curve. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's a bell curve, right? Is it, it has a peak and then it tails off to infinitesimal in the distance, right? Uh huh. So there's a thing called the error function, which is the integral of the Gaussian. So it okay. starts out at negative infinity and is very close to zero most of the time. And then when it gets to the, the peak of the galaxy and it goes sort of smoothly up, you know, exponentially at first and then kind of linearly, and then it kind of tapers off near one asymptotically. So right, it's never quite zero on the left, never quite one on the right, and it kind of goes through this inflection in the middle. Okay. Yep. You got to visualize that. Those are, those are generally called sigmoids or S-shaped curves. Okay. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting to me is that all empirical systems tend to behave in something like this, right? There's never a sharp cliff where you just jump from zero to one. There's always some sort of smooth transition period. Uh -huh. And what I realized is that when I um, feel that something valuable to me is under threat, I shift into binary thinking, zero or one, good or evil. Okay. And I, I feel the need to say this is good and that is or this is right and that is wrong. And I realize uh, sort of philosophically that that is always partly false. Is that no matter where you draw that line on the sigmoid, you know, there's some false positives and some false negatives. Okay. You know, and what I realize is that the thing that seems to get me stuck, the thing that seems to keep me thinking in terms of law rather than grace, is when my sense of self is at stake with being right, or I feel like I have to be defend the fact that I am right in order to defend my identity, whether it's my personal self, my physical being, my emotional being, my relationships, my group, my family, whatever. And what I've discovered, or what I've come to believe, is that being able to draw this line and say, you know, hey, this is right and this is wrong, is essential for when you're in a, call it a father position, where it is your job to define the context. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a father, that is something that you need to do, and to fail to do that amounts to cowardice. All right. 
But the interesting thing is that, well, it's like I always say, right? You can't live uh, without the law, but you can't live by the law. Because anytime right. you draw that line, you're at least a little bit hypocritical. Uh, because, you know, trying to chop up real numbers into rational numbers or binary is always, there's always some, some noise and some loss and some error. And what I, uh, I guess, the useful thing about so from the father's perspective, you're drawing a, a law, but from a savior's perspective, the, the thing about Christ on the cross is he is taking all the sin upon himself. Right. And at least the way that I have experienced that operationally is I can go into a situation where people are, you know, blaming each other. The easiest scenario is with my kids. When my kids are having conflict and I say, okay, let me just say this is my fault for not understanding this and leaving you on your own and let me take responsibility for it uh, and be the scapegoat so you can, like, you know, blame me and move on and I can give you a framework for feeling good about yourself without you having to kind of bear that burden. And does that, does that work? Yeah, it does. Is that there's a, there's a saying in, in business, there's no limits to what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Uh-huh. And I found the corollary is also true. There's no problem you can't solve if you don't care if you can get people to stop caring about who gets the blame. Like uh -huh. a lot of problems you can discuss with people, whether it's personally or professionally, and they'll say, well, that person is just wrong. And it's like, as long as they feel like that person is wrong and have to be punished for their wrong, it is hard to come up with a sort of win-win solution. Mm. It's like they, they feel the need for it to be win-lose. And, you know, that's a natural and understandable and a real thing, right? right. Ain't a real thing. Like he can't just wave them away. They have to be dissipated into something big enough to take it. Mm -hmm. And you know, just as a practical matter, that is the thing that I discovered uh, very concretely during the Great Reset: is that there would be a hurt feeling and a lot of anger, and the very bright, passionate, Christ-like disciples would just be stuck because they were offended. There was something uh -huh. that they saw as truly wrong that it did not make sense for them to let go of. Uh -huh. And it was only when I came to a place on the cross where I would say, ah, I see what I did wrong. I own that. And I do not stand on my own righteousness. Paul talks about this all the time, uh, right? It's not whether I'm right or wrong is not the thing that matters to me anymore. What matters is that Christ is right and I am not. Yeah. And this uh, operational understanding of the righteousness of Christ, of taking on the sins of the world, is something I have found to be profoundly powerful um, when I'm able to get to that place. But like even now, I feel like I can, uh, I can sort of hint at it, but I'm not even sure if you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, well, I, uh, you know, I face various situations where I feel like I'm right or like the problem is some other person's way of dealing with things. But if I can 
find a way in Christ to feel or to see myself as responsible and take the blame myself, that diffuses the situation or releases opportunities that weren't there before. Is that getting close? Yeah, I think that's in the same family uh, okay. of, of things, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, let's call it the mindset shift from I am right and you are wrong to I am responsible and uh, I have grace for you. Uh-huh. Right? It doesn't deny that there is wrong on the other side, but it, it, is, I guess, forgiveness, right? It no longer feels the need to make a big deal about it. Okay. And like in our last conversation, when I was able to think of this, come up with this understanding of the thing I was reacting to and framing, and the thing I myself do, suddenly, you know, I was able to own that. And the question of whether or not you were doing it uh, no longer had any emotional weight. Right. Like, I didn't feel like I had to make you acknowledge it or I had to get you to explain it to me because it wasn't this sort of existential, if that's overstating it, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lie that got blocked. So anyway, this, that, let's, let's go with that. You know, it's not the only thing there, but it's, it's, it's something there that you and I have a common experience of that we can talk about. Like, I feel like, and this is the book, um, The Bait of Satan, have you heard that book? Oh, a long time ago. It's been a long time. Yeah. We've done it in a couple of different small groups. It's always been really powerful. And we've seen some really major uh, relational healing take place in that. Uh, but, but basically, you know, the punchline is that the beta state is a fact. Is that Satan loves to help us to uh, get us to take offense at something someone else does. Uh-huh. And that is what divides churches, that's what divided Paul and Barnabas, um, and the, um, like, this is the, this is, you know, one thing that I, uh, like, even people within the DBJ and our community, I feel like I have this conflict with them. I have a real hard time seeing it in myself. Uh, because I have all these defense mechanisms and layers and blind spots or whatever, uh, where my brain just refuses to even ask that question. And I certainly know that other people have defenses too, because I trigger them all the time. And I feel like this is the thing that um, I need to get better at doing and get better at helping other people to experience. Like, I don't know if it's ever possible to guarantee it, but I feel like it's possible to explain it better and experience it better than I do now. Uh-huh. So that's kind of where I'm I'm at at this point. Curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, one question that ran through my mind. So um, our last uh, interaction uh, caused you pain was resolved by you finding a way to take responsibility. Um, is there something that I could or uh, maybe should have done myself to take responsibility? Um, would that have been as effective? Would you have benefited as much? Um, so the thing that for me was actually 
the breakthrough was putting a name on the pain, um, which I guess is what confession is supposedly about, right? It's agreeing together that this is the thing that happened. Right. Um, and so the um, even being able to say, yes, this is a thing, and this is a label we can use for that thing, seems to be enormously helpful whether or not the other person agrees that this is whether or not they are responsible for what they did. And so, so the thing that's interesting to me is the reason for me that, um, I guess the, the other word I, I use this before is anomie. It's like uh, unarticulated social pain. It's sort of free-floating anxiety or anger, uh, whatever, without a clear cause. And so when I'm able to, uh, name something, then I at least have an understanding that, oh, the reason this caused me pain is not essentially because of something they did wrong, but contextually because I lacked the grace to absorb that. And so that for me is really the, the thing that uh, flips my mindset from there's something somebody else is doing wrong and I have to stop them to ah I'm feeling this pain and this is where I need to grow in Christ so that pain doesn't uh, control me uh -huh. and what's interesting to me when I had this conversation with my wife uh, from a practical perspective we didn't agree on any like next step things to do but instead of being offended that she wasn't doing what I thought was the right thing, I just found myself curious. It's like, huh, this seems like an obvious thing to do. Seems like the obvious right thing to do, but she doesn't want to do it. And I was curious rather than offended, which is a novel reaction in particular area. Right. And I can still say, you know, that, that seems less than ideal, but maybe God is doing something subtle here, and I don't need to get hung up on this thing going this way because maybe uh you know this is the one percent case where it's actually the right thing to do or where it is a because i really hung up on like well this is unwise even if it worked out okay this time and i can get you can i at least can find myself a bit not that people are continuing making these foolish choices and getting away with it but another way of looking at it is that well you know, it doesn't really matter in this context so i shouldn't be so uptight uh, and I'm really afraid of the future pain if this goes wrong and, and my sense of feeling shame or guilt for not preventing it. So it's what I can say, you know, this is still, uh, you know, has some level of danger or risk to it, but, um, you know, it's possible it has some upside that I don't realize. It's possible that my insistence on this has more downsides than the practical consequences. Things that I can sort of, it's no longer part of my identity. I've, that, that's probably the word. I've externalized. Um, so before the evil was resting in something else that somebody else was doing, and the pain was something that I identified with. And so the process I was able to go through was by naming it, I was able to decouple the wrong from the person 
and decouple the pain from myself and kind of step back and look at that, I guess, as we would say, through the eyes of Jesus. Uh And that decoupling um, seems to be the critical step that enabled all these other positive responses uh, as opposed to being locked in the cycle of reactivity. So you described the shift from something to curiosity. And uh, I just want to bookmark that. Oh, I remember. from offense to curiosity. Yeah. So I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, uh, irritation and curiosity are incompatible. That if you're feeling mm-hmm. irritated, you're not curious and vice versa. Um, and I've uh, tried to keep that in view when I'm uh, feeling <laughs> irritated or frustrated. Um, I it felt like either I missed your answer or you missed my question about in our recent uh, interaction, whether there was something I could have done differently that would have been better or um, more constructive for you than what you, than what you processed. It seemed like what you processed was very helpful for you. I'm just wondering if there were alternatives that uh, particularly in the, along this line of me taking responsibility in some way uh, for something I didn't feel responsible for and how that might have played out in my own thinking process and whether that would have added to your benefit or taken away from the benefit you actually experienced. Right. So as a practical matter, like this was a thing that um, it had to irritate me for us to be able to have something concrete to work uh-huh. right? So in some sense, if either you hadn't done anything to irritate me or if you immediately like owned it and said, oh, I'm so sorry, that was totally wrong of me. Um, right. And and then you had just owned up onto it. Like it would have, the problem would have gone away before I was able to understand and resolve it. So it was necessary in this case for you to, um, uh, uh, continue irritating me long enough for me to figure out what it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? And so in that sense, it was an optimal outcome, which is kind of the uh-huh. point about like every evil is a potential redemptive good. And mm-hmm. I guess the interesting, um, you know, you know, we've, we've been going back and forth on whether or not principles are a good thing, but it's an interesting principle to consider that you know, in the future with other people, if you decide to adopt this principle, that like, oh, every time I someone is irritated with me, um, um, you know, it may be because I have done something to irritate them, and uh, I am uh, you know, I immediately shift into curiosity mode in order to figure out what it is that I have done to irritate them, rather than focusing on what they're doing here to me. Right. So I can uh, imagine that that principle might be efficacious. Yeah, so I, uh, I think I, I think I hear you saying that shifting to curiosity mode, which I think is what I review about why this bothered you was more helpful than me not claiming responsibility and just, um, uh, just trying to address the problem that way. Uh, that was a little garbled for some reason, but I didn't quite hear that. Yeah, so it sounds like that uh, uh, my becoming curious about what offended you and why 
was more helpful than me just saying, well, I'm responsible for whatever you're feeling and I'm sorry about that. Please forgive me um, without that curiosity. Um, well, in this particular context, it was helpful that, um, um, so the, so one thing I think that's true, it's not exactly what you said, but it's close, I think, right. which is that, um, and this is something that our friend uh, David Johnson uh, pointed out to me, is that he really takes apologies because he feels like they're a premature way to end the conversation. Like, oh, I'm sorry, and you just drop it. Right. And right. I think the one possible application of this is that, you know, if you have enough relational slack to be able to do it, is going past uh, uh, or even de delaying the apology to work through the confession to get yeah. to a point of understanding of what went wrong. Right. Having a... a collaborative curiosity about it. Yeah. So I think the interesting, I think the reason this is hard and the reason it is possible to get better at this is that it feels like the limit on how much I can do this is connected to how wrong I feel about myself and still feel I am okay in Christ. Say that again, that how, wrong, uh, how wrong you can feel about yourself and still feel okay in Christ? Yeah. What you said, okay. Yeah, which I think is tied into this issue of relational security. In that, like, I, in some ways, uh, because you and I are less enmeshed and more intellectual, with you, like, saying I screwed up in my relationship with you is not as threatening to me as saying I screwed up in my relationship with my son or my wife. Right. right. So there's a, it's like the product of how big the error is and uh, how big, how important this relationship me or maybe my self-identity relationship is to me um, divided by my understanding of Christ's grace. Uh -huh. uh, there's some uh, formulaic thing there that um, it feels like this is the thing that and what's interesting to me is that we've been doing a lot of focus on the uh, increasing the sense of grace, right, of coming to receive from Jesus. And I think that that is good. And, you know, I still think that is a central But it makes me wonder if there's something else that we don't explicitly talk about or practice in DBJ that is worth calling out or paying more attention to. Or making a central focus of the passage we the next time we do a DBJ to see if there's a different dynamic that emerges. Oh, okay. The, um, the two other passages that came to mind, so the passage that I just shared with you 
I think one was the um, uh, Isaiah's call, like, woe to me, I'm a sinful man. Right. Uh, the other was Jesus's passage about the speck and the log. Right. Matthew and, seven. And so both passages, nothing resonated with you strongly yet. Um, a couple other passages that came to mind in that genre. One is the first John chapter one, which talks about walking in the light. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Mm-hmm. But if we confess our sins, we faithful and just to forgive us our sins righteousness. So it's a beautiful passage, but it is very uh, expository. There. Another yeah. passage that has come up is Jesus. He broke up a little bit. So I've lost everything since another passage is. So yeah, so the two passages we talked about and then two other passages that came to mind were uh, the first John chapter one about forgiving, you know, walking in the light, confessing sins, being forgiven. And then the second passage was the woman caught in the act of adultery. Oh, okay. And which has many layers about sin and confession and forgiveness and judgment. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of lay that out there. Like, I don't feel any urgent need to schedule something, but I want to just kind of start playing with some different ideas and see if there's any resonance anywhere. Yeah, well, um, uh, nothing uh, yet. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I certainly would enjoy any of those passages. I, uh, the things that I'm processing uh, currently or don't seem to connect with any of those in particular. Uh, I don't know how much more you, time you have or how much. How I have like five be. minutes. Yeah. Well, I could try and summarize. Uh, so I've mentioned Mark Gunger to you a couple times. He's an evangelist, pastor, comedian with a, who developed a ministry and uh, giving seminars on healing marriages. And I think the core thing that I've walked away with anyway is uh, the the, ten, the strong tendency we have in, re, in close relationships to push, why can't you be more like me? Um, and to, uh, instead of appreciating and seeking to understand the wonderful differences that create a more complete you know, person in a, in a marriage relationship to feel frustrated by the very things that attracted us to each other. And it's not new, but he has some ways of presenting it that have uh, 
has been helpful for us working through some of the painful dynamics in our family system. And then uh, I don't know if you're familiar probably with the Bible Project. And oh, yeah. Mat- Jim and I have done a couple of podcasts on that. Some of the materials they've absorbed from Mike Heiser about the unseen realm cosmos as understood by the biblical writers and ancient civilizations at the time uh, with the God Council that God rules the universe in relationship with the beings he created um, in uh, a deliberative process that um, has parallels in how we relate to each other and um, uh, some somebody else I listened to, Chris Blackaby, who's picked up on some of that in a recent, uh, well, I guess it was a year and a half ago, um, but something I'm listening to now that uh, <clears throat> looks at living out of the very different attitude of our Father in Heaven from the, the other option for being fathered by Satan in greed and corruption and crime and, and selfishness, really everything stemming from selfishness and self-centeredness um, and uh, the idea of uh, trusting in God rather than our own efforts and resting in that um, and being generous even when there's injustice and this inspired me recently to think about you know, when someone sues you for your coat, giving your cloak as well, or however that's phrased in modern English. Um, and this whole situation with our lawsuit, you know, instead of trying to limit the damage as much as we can, should we go beyond what we're required to? And uh, I haven't uh, had opportunity yet to, uh, to discuss that with my wife to see if God is saying anything similar to her. But uh, just this idea that there, uh, the, at the heart of the universe is a heart that loves everyone regardless of how much wrong they've done, including me, and that walking in that love rather than calling for justice and fighting for my rights um, is a different life than, you know, those are two different lives. So, so that yeah, was that's a uh, about the giving your cloak. I will look at that. And if you think of any other passages that touch on these themes, I definitely think there's some overlap there in what uh-huh. you're going through, what I'm going through. And I think if we can find an intersection of that, that'll give us a good next step. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, I've got to run. God bless you, Robbie. Right. Thank you for your time. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. <laughs>